Hey gang, welcome to another episode of Value Added, the real estate podcast. On today's episode, we're chatting with Nels Larson. Nels is the founder of Guidance Accounting, and he has a lot of experience working with real estate investors, uh, primarily in cost segregation studies and depreciation recapture, which we will discuss today. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Welcome to Value Added, the real estate podcast where we speak with the brightest minds in the world of real estate who provide, create, and realize value in an ever-changing market. And now your host, Nick Walters. Let's dig into the topic of the day. Um, you are, you're a CPA by, by, uh, your, your background. Last um, time I checked. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you've, you've been expanding your, your business, um, in the world of real estate. Um, and we, we want to talk about cost segregation first. Um, it's such a, uh, it, it's, it's, a, such an important part of, uh, the world of real estate in, um, in mitigating your, your tax liability, uh, in being able to, uh, being able to write off, um, things that you probably didn't know you could write off, you know, d g drilling down into, you know, the screws in the walls. But anyway, so <laughs> tell the listeners a little bit more about what cost segregation is and how it can be utilized, uh, when investing in commercial real estate. Sure, absolutely, Nick. So uh, cost segregation, or sometimes you'll hear um, nerds like me might shorten it down to cost seg, or real estate folks might just say cost seg or cost seg study. Um, you know, really what that what that term is telling us, what we're doing is we're looking at, you know, let's say you spend $5 million on a, on a building. Um, you know, so we know, first of all, that we have to separate the value of the land that the building sits on from the building itself. And for tax purposes, as most listeners probably know, and I'm sure you know, for we cannot depreciate land. Uh, we can depreciate land improvements. And that's, we'll get into that in just a moment here. But so we start off with this idea, we've spent 5 million bucks on uh, a piece of property, you know, whatever it is, it could be a, a, an apartment building, could be a warehouse, could be a, you know, professional office building. Um, and obviously it's going to look a lot different if it's sitting in Manhattan versus if, if it's sitting in, uh, you know, Lenexa, Kansas in the middle of the country uh, or in, you know, even more remote locations. But, you know, so first off, we want to make sure that we're getting the value of the land uh, carved out correctly. And with a cost segregation study, what we're doing is, okay, so we, we know the value of the land is X and then the value of the building is Y. But as you know, and as listeners probably know, for tax purposes, the IRS says a commercial property, so warehouse, office building, you know, medical, dental building, um, those properties are have to be depreciated over 39 years. I mean, that's a, I mean, if I had 39 years left, I'd be up and down. I'd be so excited right now, but I, you know, I, I don't know if I do. Um, and if it's a residential property, 27 and a half years is what the IRS says we have to depreciate over. So those are both really long periods of time, I think, from any investor perspective or owner perspective. So what cost segregation does is, you know, back to that example, $5 million piece of property, let's say a million dollars gets allocated to the land, $4 million is allocated to the building. Okay. But we have all these other asset classes within the tax code that we can allocate um, 
some of that $4 million purchase price to. And technically, there are nine asset categories. You know, you've got the shell, the building, you've got HVAC, you've got electrical, you've got plumbing, uh, and there are a few others that uh, I'm forgetting off the top of my head. But, you know, we, we don't want to turn everyone into cost-saving experts. We just want people to have an idea what's going on. So with, uh, with cost-saving, then, you have somebody... Sometimes they're a CPA, sometimes they have more of a, back, uh, a background in engineering, but they've had some accounting training uh, where they can perform these cost segregation studies. I do not perform them myself. I don't have anyone in my firm that does them specifically, but, you know, I know it. And, and I would just say for your listeners, it's important to, to know when you need to ask more questions or explore more about what a cost seg study be beneficial to you or your investor group. I think I know a lot of CPs out there that would say um, that every property that that a syndicate purchases or an investment group purchases, you should pretty much automatically do a cost seg study. Um, some would say, well, let's look at the facts and circumstances, but it's certainly something that you should consider on every property. And uh, to come back, and I apologize, I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole there, but to come back to your question, then what we're doing, we're taking that $4 million purchase price. And we're going to try to break out as much of that from the 39 year, if it's commercial, or 27 and a half year, if it's residential, and allocate that to these other asset classes, which may have a five year, seven year, 12 year, 15 or 20 year life. And these other asset categories like uh, land improvements, parking lots, landscaping, um, you know, did we actually, you know, plant trees, move dirt? I mean, when you think about it, like a golf course. I mean, most of what a golf course is, is land, but there are tons of segregation opportunities just in a golf course because that land, most of it has been pushed around or moved around or regraded or something, you know, in the not too distant past. Uh, which, which are all considered land improvements that you were just referencing. Ab- absolutely. Ago, right? Yep, absolutely. So, um, and, you know, right now we're sitting in this kind of gravy area with the tax code where a few years ago, uh, with the big tax bill uh, that was passed at the end of 2017, effective for 2018, we have a, what we call 100% bonus depreciation. So um, irrespective of the fact that like land improvements would be depreciated over 15 years, uh, with the 100% bonus depreciation law that came came to us a couple of years ago, anything that's got a, a life of less than 20 or 20 years or less, I should say, qualifies for 100% bonus depreciation. So if you've got a $4 million building and you can carve, let's say, another $2 million into these various asset categories that are 20-year or shorter lifespan per IRS code, then you've got $2 million that you can take bonus depreciation on today with the tax return you're filing now. And when you do a cost segregation study, you know, I've had clients come to me or you know heard stories about people that they buy a building and they're like, well, when should I do a cost seg study? Well, you know, certainly look at it right away when you make the acquisition, but you don't necessarily have to do it right then and there. You could do it a couple years down the road and people are like, well, but if I do that, do I have to amend my prior tax returns? And the beautiful answer is no. There's a one-time adjustment of 481A adjustment for those people who are afraid they might get that question on, uh, you know, on, on tax jeopardy later on. Uh, 481A adjustment allows you to put that kind of one-time catch-up uh, bonus depreciation or depre- you know, bonus number on the tax return for this year, even though you're, you're doing makeup depreciation, say from your, let's say you're in year four of your deal and uh, you didn't 
do a cost seg study till just now. Well, you know, we're going to be able to take all that makeup depreciation now in year four without having to worry about going back and, um, and amending those, you know, years one, two, and three tax turns and all your investors get new K-1s and they got to amend returns and people might be happy if you get money back, but it's a lot of hassle. So you don't have to do that. Um, so during the year, during the year that you're, you're, uh, performing the cost seg study, uh, you could very well realize a, a paper loss with, with that additional write-off, uh, you know, that, that, that predates to that, that re- that's retroactive to say day one of the acquisition. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct, Nick. Um, I had a client a couple of years ago. So I think about five, five or six years ago, he purchased a, a strip mall. Uh, you know, let's say his purchase price, I think it was actually pretty close to, you know, the number we're mentioning, 5 million bucks. Um, you know, I, I took a look at it and I'm like, you know, I think, you know, we should look at doing a cost seg study. And this is, and he was new to me in like year three of his, of owning this piece of property. And so we did a cost seg study. We went out to the marketplace. We got, you know, quotes from cost seg providers, you know, selected one to, to do the cost seg study, did the cost seg study. And with that investor, I think when we, you know, implemented the, the uh, cost seg numbers into the current year tax return, I think we wound up getting, well, I know we had about $140,000 tax refund that we got. So it was pretty significant for him and would be for a lot of investor groups. Hmm. Um, one thing I should mention, it's not cost seg specific, but since we're talking about real estate and allocating, you know, purchase price. Um, one thing that cost seg can generally not do is if you have over allocated too much of your purchase price to the value of the land, and if you're a couple of years into the deal, what happens is when you file two tax returns, the IRS says you have established a method, even if it's an incorrect method. And so at that point in time, if you allocate too much of your purchase price to the value of the land, you're stuck. A cost seg study cannot go in and carve out value away from the land and into the building where then it can be, you know, further allocated into these shorter lived asset classes. So I, I would encourage every real estate investor out there, every real estate investor group out there, that when you acquire a piece of property, make sure that you have, I mean, obviously you have to play by the rules. You need to allocate you know, a correct amount to the value of the land. You can't go $5 value of land, you know, $4,999,995 value of the building. But, you you know, once once you've established the value of the land, you can't go back. And cost seg service providers will tell you that they are not appraisers. And so they are not um, professionally qualified to appraise what the value of the land is based on your purchase price. And so you want to make sure that you get that allocation correct from day one, because you might wind up, and that was an issue, I've seen that a few times, where so I recently had a client, uh, $2 million acquisition price. Their prior accountant, you know, God only knows why, decided to allocate half the value to land and half the value to the building uh, with no substantiation. You know, no, we looked at property tax statements or anything like that. They just It just felt right in the moment, who knows. So. We, we went back, we did a cost seg study, and we got a tremendous benefit for him in one year. But unfortunately, we couldn't do anything about it. And 
honestly, I figure that the value of the land is probably worth half a million. So they probably allocated half a million dollars too much to the value of the land. And there's nothing we can do to fix that. Hmm. So sorry to, to, you know, get off cost sake specific, but since we're kind of in a related topic, I want to make sure we get that out there. So people are yeah, aware of that. That's, that's really important to note uh, that y- you, you can't just put a number on the value of the land and it, you really have to, to, um, I would assume that you, if you're if you're trying to determine the value of the of the unimproved land, um, you would have to go into the tax, uh, you know, the the tax records, right? The, yeah, the assessed, you know, the assessed value of the land. Yeah, you know, pro- property tax records. You know, if there's like a county assessor's valuation, that would be a good starting point. Uh, depending on the size of the the property and the dollars involved. You know, if you're doing an appraisal on the front end, because maybe there's going to be a bank loan involved, I would ask the appraiser, and I don't see this very often where the appraisers actually split out the value of the improvements versus the value of the raw, the raw land. But if, if I were an investor or if I was buying a piece of property just for myself for investment purposes, I would ask the appraiser to do that. Uh, you know, if they say no, then, then yeah, you know, look at property tax records or, you know, county assessor's records. Gotcha. Yeah. That's, so you have some kind of substantiation, you know, if the IRS were to ask the question down the road. Sure. Yeah, no, that's, that's very, very helpful. Um, And I think that's something that, that uh, investors have to uh, be familiar with as they're going through the, the, um, the initial, the initial uh, stages of, of putting together a, a cost seg study. So, uh, let's go back to our hypothetical, uh, example. So I bought a, a $5 million building. Uh, we're allocating a million dollars uh, of the purchase price to the, the value of the land. And then the $4 million to the, uh, the, the improvements on the land. Um, four years go by and we've been operating this asset and we get it to a point where we've executed our business plan and the next stage is is a, a liquidity event let's just say we're we're selling the the asset uh we are uh we're going to be very very happy because we're we just took advantage of uh of the cost segregation study that we did a few years prior um and when we sell the asset, we're going to uh, realize all of that savings and we're going to put a big check in our pocket or we're going to roll it into another asset in the form of a 1031 tax exchange. Uh, that's, all, uh, that, that's, that's all very true, right? But you're going to tell me no. <laughs> uh, that is correct. <laughs> the, um, the, you know, cost segregation is, uh, it's a very powerful tool. It's, it's a, you know, tool that every real estate investor should, you know, have on their, hanging on their tool belt or sitting in a toolbox and, and at least know when to ask, you know, more questions of an expert. Uh, but, you know, when you have a, a liquidity event, one of the things that happens, of course, you know, in your, you know, uh, scenario, we sell for profit. I mean, that's, you know, that's the whole idea, right? And the bigger the profit, the better. And what happens is, We've got uh, the tax code says, well, well, wait a second here. Uh, if you took depreciation on your real estate, you need to have, or we need to factor in depreciation recapture. And there's, there's uh, section 1245 and section 1250 depreciation recapture for, you know, again, more tax earns out there. And 1245 is recapture uh, that's applied to any depreciation that you took. And 1250 is applied to 
um, accelerated depreciation that you took. So accelerated depreciation in tax lingo typically means any amount of depreciation that you took above and beyond the straight line depreciation. So, you know, we said a few minutes ago that for um, uh, tax purposes, IRS says commercial property gets depreciated over 39 years. That's 39 years straight line and 27 and a half years straight line for residential. So by doing a cost seg study and by, you know, pulling out, you know, we had that $5 million purchase, hundred million bucks sits in the land. We don't do anything with that, but we allocated 2 million of our 4 million remaining basis uh, into shorter lived assets. And we did bonus depreciation that we took, you know, back in year one or year two. So with any of that, that bonus depreciation, we're going to have to do depreciation recapture. So, you know, we're looking at if it's 1245 or 1250, we're looking at ordinary uh, tax rates. But what you, so really the benefit in that scenario of doing a cost seg study, it's time value money. Uh, you know, I, I would imagine any real estate investor, any investor even contemplating real estate, he understands time value money, discounted cash flows, net present value stuff. So you know that a dollar today is worth more than a dollar in four or five years down the road. So because hopefully you're going to be able to leverage that. You know, you're going to be able to take the dollar today and get a rate of return that's going to be, you know, greater than inflation or greater than your discount rate, uh, you know, for the dollar you're going to get in four years. So then, you know, in that scenario, then that's the benefit of cost seg is, you know, hopefully we still have been able to take that you know, whatever our depreciation tax savings was, um, you know, but from as a result of doing a cost seg study and deploy that capital into other investments or pay off, you know, high interest debt or something, you know, that's going to make sense from a, a financial leverage perspective. Gotcha. Yeah, so, that's, that's, uh, that's all really, really helpful information. Uh, just getting, getting the, uh, the investor prepared that, um, if they they end up doing a cost seg study and taking advantage of accelerated depreciation, um, knowing that they're going to still have to uh, pay those taxes through depreciation recapture at a, a liquidity event. That could also be a refi or an outright sale. Is that correct? So if you if you refinance uh, a property, that is typically not a, uh, you know, that's just a recapitalization event. That's not a, a taxable event per se. So if you just go to your bank and, you know, let's say you were paying, uh, I don't know, you know, 5% interest and you're going to get a better interest rate and, and for some reason you're able to get a longer term. So you're going to have better cash flow, plus you're going to get a little cash out of the property because maybe the property has appreciated significantly. That in and of itself won't be a taxable event. Um, it certainly could affect your basis as an investor in your investment, which is, you know, a whole nother topic of conversation, uh, tracking, you know, basis and investments. But, um, yeah, so, you know, typically it's a sale, you know, a 1031 exchange, you know, I mean, cause you can have 1031 exchanges where most of the investment goes into 1031, but you still have, you know, a, a partial taxable event from that sale. Gotcha. Um, so, before we get into the last segment of the show, uh, do you have any other parting words uh, about cost segregation uh, or uh, straight line depreciation or or uh, or depreciation recapture? You know, I would say that the other thing to take and you know to to consider is because of depreciation recapture 
and depreciation recapture gets reported to investors on K-1s. But you need to look at tax planning as not a, 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 it's not a one time a year. It needs to be kind of an ongoing process that you do over a period of years because you might find that I got a, a tremendous tax benefit in year one from this real estate investment because I got to take some depreciation recapture. You know, awesome. But you might find if your income continues to go up and then you have depreciation recapture, say in year four or five, when we have a liquidity event and, you know, have a hopefully windfall, you might find that your personal, as an investor, that your personal tax rate, ordinary tax rate has gone up. And so it's possible that you could wind up paying more in tax in four years. Now, hopefully with net present, you know, with, you know, time value money, as we mentioned, that won't be the case. But that's something to keep in mind. It's not a, you have to annual analyze not just each year as a definite time period, but each year and then going forward and probably having a five or 10 year plan, just so you're aware of these things. So you go, oh yeah, you know, if we sell deal X over here in year five and we're in year three now, I need to be aware I could have some depreciation. I'm probably going to have some depreciation recapture because we wouldn't sell it for a loss, you know. And maybe at that point you go, well, could we do a 1031 exchange? And then we don't have to worry about depreciation recapture. Nails, we're going to close out this show uh, with the hard hitting questions. These are the questions that I ask every (laughs) one of our our, uh, guests. Uh, I always like to start out with, what is your why? What is my why? Wow, I didn't. I, I thought I was talking with Nick Walters at the yeah, Valley no, podcast. I, I, no, I stumped. I stumped you. Uh, We're getting deep. Uh, Simon Sinek. Um, <laughs> no, you know my why is I honestly I like to help people. Um, my dad passed away uh, at a somewhat early age, um, and he he didn't he didn't leave much money. Uh, in fact, he we had tax debt uh, when he passed away. Uh, you could say poor tax planning, but, uh, my why, because of that, my wife wound up going into life insurance because my dad didn't have life insurance. And I really, my passion is to help people have their affairs in, and I'm not a financial planner, but just from a tax and business perspective, I want to make sure that my clients have their affairs in order. And, uh, you know, a good CPA is part of a team. Uh, you know, you can't be all things to all people. And, you know, like I do specialize, you know, probably half of all of my firm's clients somehow are involved in real estate, real estate investors. The other half are entrepreneurial, small business owners. But my why is just helping people. And I know it probably on a personal level probably gets me into trouble because my wife says I probably give away too much information. I give away too much time. And you know what? At the end of the day, my goal isn't to be rich. It's just to, to die knowing I helped people and, and hopefully people had fun and I had fun along the way. So did, did you get into the accounting field um, b- because of your your father's uh, experiences and 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 what he what he left um, you know f- for the family as, essentially? You know, I uh, uh, actually didn't. So I have a I have a, a confession to make. Uh, I know we're not in. Uh, in church right now, but my confession is I don't have an accounting degree. My degree is in economics. And uh, when I got done with college uh, a long time ago, the economy wasn't so hot. And uh, I wound up going into accounting 
somebody suggested that I take some accounting classes and I did and I liked it. And, and originally I didn't even, I didn't want to be an accountant because my father had spent most of his working career as an accountant. <laughs> and so, and you know, a lot of people don't want to do what their parents do, right? You know, it's like, oh, my dad does that. I don't want to do that. Uh, but so the, the long answer to your short question is no, I, I did not go into accounting because of uh, my experience with my dad. Um, but I just went into accounting because I like numbers. And I like helping people. Uh, Nels, what is a recent book or another piece of media that you've consumed recently that's added significant value to your life or your career? You know, there's, um, a, well, I would say a book that I, I, I read a, a lot of books. Uh, I probably read a uh, couple books a month. Uh, there's a book on my list that I, I need to read um, called, I think it's uh, uh, The Infinite Banking Concept by Nelson Nash, uh, which is something that, uh, I'm, I've only kind of played around the edges of that. It's the idea of using uh, whole life insurance to um, kind of become your own bank, so to speak. Some people refer to it as the infinite banking concept. Um, I think uh, Be Your Own Banker maybe is another book out there. But I would say a book that I go back to and I read, um, I'm, I might even read this a couple times a year because it's so short. Um, and I can't think of the authors. I think it's a couple of authors, but The Go-Giver which is like, it's like a 130 page book or something really short like that. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of written with the, you know, the giver's gain concept or principle. But um, I believe, for example, I've built my practice from networking. I haven't purchased any client lists or anything like that. And I've always felt like so many things in life, like a health club membership. Um, you know, you can belong to a health club. They'll gladly, you know, pull their monthly dues out of your bank account. But uh, at the end of the day, you don't get a benefit if you don't go. And I've always felt maybe it's a karma thing that the more people I help, eventually that comes back to me. So, yeah. I, so maybe maybe it's selfish. I'm not sure. <laughs> no, that's that's very true. Uh, Nels, uh, knowing what you know now, what's the number one piece of advice you would give your your 21, 22 year old postgraduate self? You know, knowing what I know now. I would say take every penny you can and save it, whether it's in a retirement plan, get into more. I've, I've done some real estate investing myself for sure. I wish I would have done more earlier. And I'm, you know, full disclosure, I'm 50 years old. So, you know, I probably have, I don't know, 15 years left on the runway, something like that. But, uh, you know, I, it seems like it doesn't matter if I talk to someone who's 35 or someone who's 75. I almost always hear, I wish I would have saved more earlier, or I wish I would have bought more single family homes earlier. <laughs> um, I think a mutual acquaintance of ours, uh, Stace Caseria, um, you know, he's uh, up in uh, New England in the Boston area and has owned a number of single family homes. I know he made that comment to me in the last uh, couple months. I wish I would have bought more single family homes 25 years ago. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, that's, that's what I would tell my 21, 22-year-old self. Uh, Nels, how can uh, our listeners get a hold of you or learn a little bit more about you and your practice? Sure. Um, you know, you can certainly feel free to check out the website if you want to do it and not have to have a conversation with a real person. Uh, so the website is www, of course, that's redundant, right? Guidanceaccounting.com. Um, you know, I text, I, I talk on the phone, my daughter's in their mid-20s. Like they, somebody, I can call them. They won't answer. They won't pick up. They'll watch the phone ring and roll over to voicemail. But, uh, but they'll text all day long. 
So my phone number is 612-618-5299. I'm in St. Paul, Minnesota, but my clients, our clients are all over the country, Florida, California, and everywhere in between. Awesome. Very, very helpful info. Nels Larson, we really appreciate the time and thank you for providing your value today. Absolutely. Nick, I hope I was able to, as your name suggests, uh, add some value to the Value Added Podcast for your, for your listeners. Thanks again, Nick. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to leave a rating and a review, which will help us introduce the podcast to other listeners. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, which will give you access to other episodes you may have missed. Lastly, if you'd like to learn more about investing alongside us, then head on over to valueaddedpodcast.com. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you next week.